Well, good morning, VRVC, and happy Easter. I'm sure you look marvelous. Uh, I am so sad that I can't be there with you live. Uh, you may have heard I'm a tiny bit under the weather today, but I'm very excited to share this Easter message with you. Uh, we've been in the series uh, as a church called Follow, and maybe if you're a guest today, you feel like you're, you're just tuning into the season finale and you haven't seen the prior seven or so episodes. But uh, basically what we've been doing is we've been following Jesus into a number of spiritual practices like solitude and prayer and Sabbath. Uh, but today, as we culminate this series, we are following Jesus into a spiritual reality and that reality is the empty tomb. That reality is the resurrection. And we are so excited that you've joined us. You know, if my math is correct, this is my 23rd consecutive Easter sermon. Probably strangest circumstances for an Easter sermon, but my 23rd consecutive Easter sermon. And I can honestly say that it has never gotten old. I love preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And I always get excited uh, and I always get nervous. Why do I get excited? Well, duh, this is our Super Bowl. Uh, this is uh, the most important Sunday, the most important day of the year for us. But I also get nervous. I get nervous because, you know, those of you who are longtime church folk like myself, um, maybe you kind of feel like, well, I've heard all this before, and uh, what new am I going to learn today? And then I know that always on Easter Sunday, we have folks who come uh, as guests. Often they come out of maybe custom or uh, doing a favor for a friend or family member. By the way, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, but maybe you struggle to believe in all this God and Jesus and resurrection stuff. And so for you, I get a little bit nervous. Like, what am I going to be able to say that's going to help you lean in? Because that's my prayer, uh, is that you'll hear something that causes you to lean in like you've never leaned in before. Uh, and so regardless of who you are and regardless of why you're here, I want you to know I'm honored, I'm excited to share this ancient narrative with you again and pray that it has fresh power for you, whether you've heard it all before or whether you're hearing it anew for the first time. I want to share some words with you. Uh, that were written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a physician. He was also a historian. He was not an eyewitness uh, to the events of the resurrection. Rather, like a historian, he talked to a number of eyewitnesses, and he put what he calls an orderly report together. And so with that in mind, hear Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, one of the things that's true in Scripture, and I think one of the things that's true among all of us today, is that different ones of us have different reactions to God and faith at different times in our life. This was certainly true of those who first experienced the resurrection on Easter Sunday. In fact, you could almost find in our text today a menu option of different ways to respond to the resurrection that corresponds not just to the people in our text, but also to the people in this room today. And uh, I want to look at some of these different responses. I want to look at how people in Scripture and among us wrap our minds around this whole concept of resurrection. So how did the followers of Jesus, the original followers of Jesus, how did they wrap their minds around the resurrection? Well, I think it deserves to be noted that initially 100% of the followers of Jesus responded in the same way. When it comes to resurrection, they all chose option number one, disbelieving. Now, they didn't disbelieve in God, but they did disbelieve in the resurrected Jesus. Do you take any comfort from that news? I, I do. You know, I don't know if among Jesus' followers there was a, uh, a valedictorian or a salutatorian or a most valuable player, but, but regardless, every last one of them did not expect to see Jesus rise from the dead. And so I say this to you this morning, if you have ever struggled with doubt or if you struggle with doubt right now, guess what? You are in very good company. Now, how do we uh, know that they didn't believe? Well, first of all, I want you to look at this faithful and fearless little band of followers who stayed close to Jesus on Good Friday. They were there witnessing the cross. They followed the corpse of Jesus to see where it would be buried. We know some of their names. Mary Magdalene stands out, for example. Uh, and, and while most of the apostles had scattered when Jesus was being crucified, they stayed with Jesus. They followed the body. And, uh, and, I, and I think what is pretty noteworthy is they rested, of course, on the Sabbath day, Holy Saturday, after that Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, they came to the tomb. Well, how do we know these women weren't expecting to see the resurrected Jesus? Well, look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, on the first day of the week, uh, which would have been Easter Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, there's only one reason why you would bring these aromatic spices to a cemetery. And that is if you expected to find a corpse there that had already started to smell horrible. You only bring spices to a tomb in order to try to mask the awful scent of death. Death was what these women were expecting to see. They were expecting to meet death, that poker player who no matter what hand you're holding, always manages to take all the winnings in the end. 
And guess what? These faithful women were not the only ones who disbelieved in the resurrection on the original Easter Sunday morning. Later, after these women do a complete 180 when it comes to faith in Jesus, more on that in a minute, after these women run to spread the good news of the resurrection to the 11 men, the 11 apostles who had scattered, guess what? How did they respond? Verse 11 gives a very pointed response to how these apostles responded. It says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. These apostles of Jesus, in other words, completely disbelieved in the resurrection of Jesus at that point. Like many people today, they, in a sense, scoffed at the idea of a resurrection. They never even gave it rational consideration. The word that is used is nonsense. The word in the Greek gives us our English word delirious. You could almost hear the chauvinism in the voices of these apostles as they basically are saying Mary Magdalene and her friends are delirious. Now, sadly, those who choose this option, number one. Those who disbelieve in the God of resurrection, in a sense, they have to deal with a different almighty one, if I can put it that way. That is, they have to deal with the power of almighty death. We can try to distract ourselves from death, but death is always there waiting for us just around the corner. And death not only threatens our future, death threatens any meaning that we might find in life in the present tense. I think maybe that's why so many of us have a hard time acknowledging the reality of death. You know, whenever I meet with a family to plan a funeral, which uh, I do quite often, most of the time I discover the loved one never really talked about their funeral. Presumably they didn't want to acknowledge their death, or maybe they, they knew their family didn't want to talk about it. And, and, and listen, if you believe in death, but if you don't believe in resurrection, if you believe in death, but you don't believe in the one who overcomes death, then life has a pretty bleak outlook, doesn't it? Because you know whatever the scoreboard says right now, guess what? By the time we get to that final inning, death will be in the lead. Now, it's one thing to scoff at nonsense like the resurrection, but it's quite another thing to face up to the reality of disbelief. And maybe that's why we tend to avoid it so much. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read uh, Leo Tolstoy's uh, famous novel, Anna Karenina. And I remember a scene that I marked in that book. Uh, there was a man named Levin, and, and Levin was coming to visit his brother Nikolai uh, because Nikolai was dying. And immediately after they first saw one another, they were tender but the next day, they kind of got back to their normal patterns among one another, which were either surfacy conversations on the one hand or arguing with, with, with each other over politics on the other. And Tolstoy says that the two brothers had to kind of keep up the appearances instead of speaking from the heart to one another. He said, because if they were forced to be honest, then Levin could only say to Nikolai, Nikolai, you're dying. You're dying. And Nikolai could only say in response, I know, I know, and I'm so afraid. Sometimes right, it's hard to face up to, to the implications of disbelief in a God of resurrection. It seems to me that the women who came to the tomb that morning came 
feeling like death had won once again. And maybe that's a category that some of you would honestly put yourselves in today. Maybe you didn't carry spices, aromatic spices with you to church, but but death sure feels like the end of the road. Well, I want to tell you that something happens in this text that kind of offers a second menu option, so to speak, of how we wrap our minds around the resurrection. And maybe some of you would put yourself in this category. It's not disbelief on the one hand, but it's not faith on the other. And so to describe option number two, I'll use the word that Luke uses, and that word is wondering. The category of wondering about resurrection. Not wandering, not getting lost, but wondering, trying to make sense of confusing data. You see, if disbelieving the the resurrection basically means grimly acknowledging that death is the winner-take-all, well, wondering is not so sure about all that. Wondering is examining things that don't add up when it comes to life and death. And God, wondering, you might almost say, is taking an attitude of holy curiosity. And as these women who were the first ones up on Easter Sunday morning, they're the first ones to move basically from disbelieving to wondering. For example, in verse 2, uh, the women who had, who had seen this, the sealed tomb on Friday evening where Jesus was buried, now on Easter Sunday morning get to the tomb and they see that this massive stone has been rolled away. And they're wondering about that. Like, that's weird, isn't it? You ever had one of those, that's weird kind of moments? You know? But sometimes we, we see things that are weird, we shake our heads a little bit, but we keep moving in the same direction. The women kept moving in the same direction. They had their spices, they're about to do their sad chore of adorning the body of Jesus with their spices. But then look what happens in verse 3. It says, but when they, these women, entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now that's really weird. In fact, if you look at the beginning of the next verse, verse 4, something dramatic happens at the end of verse 4, but I want us to just notice what happens at the beginning of verse 4. It says, while they, the women, were wondering about this. The original Greek word translated wondering here can mean confused. It can mean perplexed. Wondering is what happens when you try to to add up a column of figures and it doesn't give you the answer you expect to get. Something similar happens to Peter, by the way, in verse 12. Remember how we said when the women grasped the reality of resurrection, they ran to tell the remaining apostles, uh, including Peter, and most of the apostles dismissed what these women said as nonsense. They were complete disbelievers at that point, but not all of them. Peter has a very curious reaction. Look at verse 12. It says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, get this, wondering to himself what had happened. In other words, when Peter saw the evidence of the empty tomb, uh, when he he saw the the evidence that Christ had been there, but, but he didn't see the body of Jesus, suddenly he has an attitude that's very similar to these women. He begins to marvel over these inconsistencies. It's a second menu option. 
It's wondering. It's, it's being confused or perplexed. It's trying to figure things out. Now, I don't know about you, but I generally don't like to stay in a state of wondering. I, I, I like to be pretty settled about things. I like to know it's A or it's B. I don't want to be wondering about the answer. But I actually believe something powerful can happen in your life and my life when we are in a state of wondering, when all of a sudden things aren't adding up, when a stone has been rolled away and we're not sure how. I think there's a lot of hopefulness in the midst of the wondering. I subscribe to a a newsletter uh, by an Anglican priest and, and columnist. Her name is Tish Harrison Warren. And uh, she recently, in her column, relayed a, a radio interview that she had listened to with a famous children's book author, uh, Maurice Sendak. Didn't anybody ever heard of Maurice Sendak? I, I, I've read that book, Where the Wild Things Are, to my kids so many times, I, I probably have most of it memorized. Well, was, well, this radio interview of Maurice Sendak, he, he notes during the interview that he's an atheist. And he says, you know what? He says, it's really hard being an atheist. He says he was, he was envious of his friends who believed in God. He said he felt like their lives were a lot easier. And Tish Warren said that, that Sendak's frail, gravelly voice was tender as he talked about people he had lost, as he talked about a brother who had recently died. And Sendak said this, he said, it makes me cry when I see my friends and family go before me, pass away before me, and my life is emptied. And then he said this, he said, I don't believe in an afterlife, but I still fully expect to see my brother again. Tish Harrison Warren writes this, she says, though Sendak was an atheist, he couldn't forsake the hope for another glimpse of his brother's face. She says, there's something deep within us that rejects the idea that the road just stops. She said, we feel like there must be more. We believe that we were made for more. I wonder, I wonder, what if even in the minds of the most secular of people, There is the space for hope. There is the space for wondering. And what if wondering about seeing loved ones again, like Mari Sendak did, what if that's not a bug? What if that's a feature? What if that's how we were made by God? I love the way the author of Ecclesiastes puts it in the Old Testament. He says that God has set eternity in the human heart. What if we wonder about eternity because God put an eternal consciousness in us? I wonder, right? I wonder, what if it could be true that death can't destroy ultimately everything that we love and value? What if the resurrection, friends, is not nonsense, despite what many people say? Well, that's the place where these women eventually got to. That's the place where Peter arrived. That's the place, by the way, where every other apostle except Judas Iscariot got to. Even a guy that we call Doubting Thomas got to that place when he experienced the risen Jesus. When confronted with the evidence of the resurrection, they moved from disbelieving 
to wandering to a third option. And that option number three is remembering. Did you expect me to say believing? I did. That's what I expected to say at first. And certainly they all believed in the resurrection. Jesus, especially because they saw the resurrected Jesus. But I was kind of surprised to discover the emphasis that Luke, the gospel writer, places on this word remembering. Um, He talks about it right after these women were confused and they were wondering uh, what was going on. And then to pick it up again in verse 4, it says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. These two men are obviously angels, and they ask a question that almost seems laughable at first. They ask, why are you looking for the living among the dead? In other words, why do you expect to find the risen Christ in a tomb? And just as we're about to say, uh, because that's the last place we saw his corpse, the two men, angels, say something so important. Um, We we pick it up in the middle of verse 6. The angels say, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, and then this next part in quotations, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. The two men use the word remember. Remember what Jesus said to you. You see, twice in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, a passage John Hewlett preached on for us a few weeks ago, and again in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told them of his suffering, Jesus told them of his coming, uh, sacrificial death, and then Jesus told them of his resurrection. In fact, verse 7, it says that Jesus must suffer. Whenever that particular word that the English word must translates a Greek word, dei, de. E-I, it always has this sense of God's mysterious will. It, it, it must happen. God willed that Jesus would be crucified and would rise again. In other words, Good Friday is no tragic accident. It's not about Jesus, unfortunately, finding himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, his sacrificial death must happen. It's the path that God laid out for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, for Jesus to conquer that mob boss death who tries to ruin everything that he touches. This had to happen so that we could say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that death has been swallowed up in victory. The death that tries to swallow everything we love, guess what? Death gets swallowed, almost like Pac-Man, right? Death gets swallowed up by resurrection. The resurrection swallows the foe. The resurrection takes away not all the pain of death, but the devastating sting of death. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Isn't it interesting The two angelic messengers said the word, remember. I wonder if there's something there for us today. Remember what Jesus said. In other words, they're telling these women, Jesus never lied to you. Jesus never misled you. Every word from Jesus is a word that you can bank on. It's a promise you can hold on to. And then in verse 8, in my reading at least, something almost electric happens. 
The women in verse 8, it says, then they remembered his words. I got to believe they started feeling goosebumps like they've never felt goosebumps before. I, I think it was those same memories, holy memories that caused Peter to run back to the tomb. You know, sometimes there are things that you and I heard years and years ago, truths, promises from God that we heard years and years ago, and we would have thought they were out of our minds at this point. But then something happens, and those words come to life. We remember. We connect those holy words from our path to things that we're experiencing in the present. We remember and we believe. We anchor our hearts in holy promises from God to us. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, it must be nice to have two angels show up and remind us, right? Uh, Maybe you're thinking, I'd believe too if two angels showed up and told me. But guess what? We have promises in Scripture that millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us have staked their lives upon. And when we read these same promises in faith, it may not be two angels that show up, but Jesus promises that his Holy Spirit will show up and confirm the truth of these words for us. Jesus made that promise in John 14. He says, but the advocate or the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, get this, will teach you all things and will remind you, will help you to remember everything I've said to you. Friends, on Easter, we go back to these ancient promises from Jesus, these promises that he is our resurrection, that he is our life, and we hang on to these ancient promises. Right? We, we, we put our trust in them. We discover that the resurrection is not only about our future. The, the resurrection is also a present tense reality. We believe the living Jesus is with us right now. There is a quality of life difference right now as well as a difference in our future when we will see Jesus face to face because of the resurrection. You sang it a moment ago. Soar we now where Christ has led. We're following Jesus into resurrection reality. We acknowledge death, yes, but we don't serve death. We don't live in terror to death. We don't say goodbye, ultimately, to members of the family of faith. We say, I can't wait to see you again. We say, won't it be glorious when we see each other again? We say, guess what? Death could not hold Jesus, and death will not hold you either. We say, I'm trading in my sorrows for tears of joy because Jesus is alive. We say, behold, Jesus is making all things new. Look, friends, I I know. I know for some of you, right, you're skeptical. I know for some of you, you're probably skeptical of people like me, and I get that. I get that. Let's be honest. I mean, there are way too many stories of church failure. There are way too many stories of pastors who've let us down and churches who've let us down and and Christians we know who've been poor advertisements for Jesus Christ. I'm not going to argue with you about any of that. The gospel truth is that churches 
and pastors and Christians have only one hope, and that hope is not us. Right? Our only hope is that Jesus is alive, that his sacrifice on the cross has paid the penalty for sin and death, that he has conquered death. I know there have been so many of us who've let so many people down. I know that. And yet, you know what else I know? I know that I still continue to be delightfully surprised by people I know who belong to Jesus who have this resurrection life inside of them, who have something inside of them that is eternal, something that death can't touch. And this kind of life leads them to live in hope in seemingly hopeless situations. It leads them to forgive the seemingly unforgivable. It leads them to love when everybody else is running to cynicism or bitterness. Somehow they've moved from disbelief even through wonder, and now they are remembering his words, remembering what Jesus has said, remembering what Jesus has done. And guess what? As I'm praying for you, as I'm praying for you today, I'm praying for that kind of movement. If you walked in here carrying spices, I'm praying for some holy curiosity. If you walked in here with holy curiosity, I'm praying for deep remembering. If you walked in here saying, I used to remember, but those memories are fuzzy, I'm praying for fresh hope and grasp of the words of Jesus and basing your life on them. I'm praying that for you right now. I'm praying that our faith would surge on this day as we claim these ancient promises from Jesus. I heard a story about a dad who who was driving his car on a Saturday afternoon. He had his five-year-old son in the car with him, and they were driving past a cemetery, and they both noticed a large pile of dirt beside a newly dug grave. And, and the man said that his five-year-old son pointed out that big pile of dirt uh, and said, look, dad, one of them got out. <laughs> and the dad at the time couldn't help but laugh, right? But now he says, guess what? Every time he drives past a graveyard, he thinks about how Jesus got out. And we remember that because Jesus got out, because Jesus escaped death's clutches, that we who are in Christ, we who are the body of Christ, we will get out too. We won't be conquered by death either. All of us who trust in Christ will get out. You'll get out. And you'll get out. You who trust in Christ. You, 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 you. All of us who trust in Christ, by God's grace, will overcome death. We'll follow Jesus in resurrection. We'll experience no more crying, no more pain, no more shame, no more funerals, because Jesus Christ is alive. Let me pray for all of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Lord, our minds so often go to disbelief. But I pray, Lord, that you, even now, 
for those of us who maybe on the one hand have been Christians for a long time, maybe some of us on the other hand are just kicking the tires of Christianity. Lord, I pray that you would move us from a deadened disbelief to a holy wondering, and then even more deeply, Lord, to a faithful remembering of your promises and connecting ancient promises to current reality, to current hope. Risen Jesus, come alive in our hearts right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day, friends.